Welcome to the Rock Hill Dream Center Church, where we have a vision to see communities transformed by the gospel as we love, serve, share, and send. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. <laughs> what a beautiful song. That um, song is called The Blessing. It actually is, um, for those of you that may be unfamiliar with it, it's straight out of Deuteronomy, um, that blessing that generations would be blessed one after the other is a promise that God had for the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy. And um, to sing that song is a uh, reminder of God's great promises to us as his children. And so... Uh, we pray that over you this morning as a church staff and as a church body that your generations would be blessed one after the other. Um, and I want to say from the perspective of my generation, thank you for the love that you've put forth to see us come up in good teaching and in sound doctrine and in love and care and joy. This morning we're going to be uh, jumping into the first week of the Advent series. Um, this is a big preparation that a lot of churches around the nation right now and around the world even are doing in order to prepare our hearts to celebrate Jesus' birth at Christmas time. Advent is a word that means coming. It's the anticipation of Christ coming into the world so that he could redeem God's chosen people. Well, of course, we know that God has sent Jesus and that Jesus came and he lived that life, that he bore that cross for our sin. And so you may ask, well, why do we need to celebrate the coming of Jesus if he's already come? Well, the beauty of it is that he's coming again. And this time when he comes, we don't anticipate the same sort of humble servant that comes to wash the feet of his disciples and teach at the level of understanding um, so that we can know who he is. Instead, we expect that he will come to claim us as his own in victory. He'd come riding on a horse to defeat evil for eternity so that the pain and the suffering that we feel today, this stuffy nose that I've got right now, won't even be worried about then. Amen. I won't need a Starbucks sick tea in order to clear my throat <laughs> because my body will be made whole. And my, my healing will be complete in Jesus Christ and his victory. And so this season of Advent, we're reminded of God's original coming in the, in the form of Jesus. But we're also studying in anticipation of that second return. And so as we enter in the Advent series, there's four main themes that you'll hear about. The first is hope, and then there's peace, joy, and love. And those might switch around and some places put faith in there and take another out. You know, it's all for the same purpose of us looking at these different traits of Christ and acknowledging that he brings these things into existence here on earth through his life and his death and through God's perfect will. And so to start out, I want to read a little excerpt out of Romans chapter 15, and it'll be verses 8 through 13. And they include some of these qualities. And it says, remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises he made to their ancestors. He also came so that the Gentiles might give glory to God for his mercies to them. 
That is what the psalmist meant when he wrote, For this I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. And in another place it is written, Rejoice with his peoples, you Gentiles. And yet again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Praise him, all you people of the earth. And in another place, Isaiah said, The heir to David's throne will come and he will rule over the Gentiles. They will place their hope on him. Verse 13, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. That hope is what we'll discuss this morning, that hope that can overflow our hearts for love of God. You see, when, when Scripture talks about hope, it's a different kind of hope than what we commonly understand today, right? So um, if you watched any football this weekend um, and you are, for example, I won't dog everybody in the room, I'll, I'll go for me. I'm an Ohio State Buckeye. You hope as a Buckeye, that they would pull something out in the fourth quarter to beat Michigan because they hadn't lost to them in 10 years, but this year they wanted to do something a little different and let Michigan win. That's not cool to me. My hope was broken there, but that's a different kind of hope. Or um, I don't know, if you're my wife, uh, Maddie always gets mad at me because I, I have to pick on her a little bit whenever I get the mic in my hand. But if you're my wife, she comes home, she hopes I might have started a load of dishes. That's a different kind of hope than we're talking there. And trust me, she's disappointed a lot. I need to do better. Boys, I need you to hold me accountable. Do the dishes, Garrett. Um, the hope instead that Scripture talks about is a secure hope, a hope that we can bank on, a hope you would put your money on if you were betting, a hope that you know is secure. And so when you read the word hope in Scripture, don't think of this wishy-washy, maybe, I, I hope this happens kind of idea that we're familiar with. This is secure. This is a sure hope. In fact, um, John Piper, in uh, a sermon that he wrote on this in 1996, on my birthday, so I was one years old, um, says that you can use the word hope in at least three ways. The first is a subjective feeling or conviction in the soul. For example, I hope to go to heaven. The second is a future objective reality that you hope for. Heaven is my hope. And then the third, a person or event that makes your confidence sure. Jesus' death is my only hope of escaping judgment. Or another way to look at it is, is, is we think about hope in terms of what scripture has to say about it, it's like you've had a really, really bad day. And all you can hope for, all you can hunger for, all you want is that sun to come up tomorrow for a good, another chance, a reset button, and another opportunity to live and have a better day tomorrow. That's the kind of hope, that longing and that searching and seeking for something that is sure to come. And so let's look at our, our main scripture for the day and see what, what it says about hope. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 6, and I'll be reading verses 7 through 20. It's a little bit of a chunk, um, so if you've got your Bible with you, I encourage you to read along. Uh, my voice can become monotone. It's good that Lowry's not here. He will fall asleep um, if he hears me read that amount of verses. Um, kick your neighbor if they start falling asleep, because God, I really believe, is saying something to us here in his word. 
Hebrews chapter 6, be verse 7 through 20. Hebrews chapter 6, 7 through 20. And this is what it says. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. Dear friends, even though we are talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it, and without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So that's a big portion of scripture, and I want to start at the beginning. One of the things that I absolutely love to do with scripture is what we call brick-by-brick teaching. And so that's where we take and we go step-by-step, verse-by-verse, and say, what is God saying to us here? I'm not going to do that necessarily this morning. Instead, I'm going to go chunk-by-chunk, so maybe wall-by-wall teaching this morning, so that we can get a good idea of what this hope is that God is talking about. I'm going to start in verse 7 and 8. It says, when the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. And so you're thinking, well, that seems out of place. We don't have any context there. What am I supposed to take out of that? If you read 1 through 6 of chapter 6, which I encourage you to do, um, there's a, a very key reason why I'm not reading that this morning, is because it splits denominations. Um, it's, a, it's a very heavy verse that talks about whether or not somebody can lose their salvation. But in the context of verses 7 through 9, we get understanding as to what the author is talking about. And that is whether or not we bear the fruit of salvation. And so he compares the believer to a field. He says if the field soaks up the rain and bears good crop, good for the field, it will be blessed. If the field bears thorns and thistles when it rains, it's useless. The farmer's going to burn it over and try again. And so verse 7 and 8 is talking about wavering faith 
that's really covered in verses 1 through 6. But notice what the author of Hebrews says here. In verse 9, he says, Dear friends, even though we're talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. So what does that tell us about the audience that's being addressed here? They're believers. They are not wavering in their faith as the people in 1 through 7 do. Instead, they are strong in their faith. He even goes on to say, we are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with what? Salvation. So for you believers, I'm not referring to these things. You are believers who deserve better, who are built for better, who are meant for better things, things that come with believing, things that come with salvation. Verse 10 says, for God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers, as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. And so the purpose that the, the author here gives the believers is not to go and look at those who, who grew the thorns and the thistles. Right? He doesn't say, go on and try to tend that field and make it better. Go plant more seeds in that field because it's not growing right and it's your job to do it. That's not what he says. He says, I believe that you deserve better things that come with salvation because God honors your hard work for his kingdom. You're bearing fruit. God honors that you bear fruit as his follower. Well, what does he call that fruit? He says that you show love to him by caring for other believers. Okay, so what's one of our main jobs as a crop-bearing field is to care for the believers that are around us. You might be saying, well, Garrett, what does this have to do with hope? That's a good question. I think you could argue that Anybody can show that kind of concern for others. Um, I would even say that in today's society, concern for others has taken the number one seat. But it's where our concern comes from that determines whether or not we are trying to really see that person grow. We see right now in the world a lot of concern for people to build their own truths, to have their own way of living, to determine their own path, to take ownership of their own destiny. That is not what God teaches us to seek. God teaches us to seek his truth, his destiny for our lives, his purpose. And so as we move forward in hope and we care for one another, we point each other to that same desire. Verse 12 says, Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Now, big pause right here. Verse 12 is a huge verse. If you missed it, I'll cover it real quick. Because verse 12, this author and God through his word is telling you that by loving other believers and being a believer, you are gaining the same inheritance, the same hope as Abraham. Abraham, one of the most famous characters in Scripture, one who God used to multiply his people. 
one who God used to send his lineage into this believing community. I mean, it's Abraham, the first receiver of a promise from God, a covenant that God would make his descendants as numerous as the stars. And here God is saying that same blessing, that same salvation that I gave my son Abraham, I'm giving to you. God doesn't play favorites. We are each created in his image and for his purpose. So don't get confused about what this stage is for. Being up here with this mic in your hand on this stage makes you no greater than anybody sitting in those seats or outside of these walls. Each of you is made in God's image. And each of you, through believing in him, receives this blessing, his promises, because of your faith and your endurance. The same promises that were given to Abraham. Oh, that's just so exciting to me that we could have that opportunity to receive those riches and that glory that we read about in Scripture. Verse 13 says, For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. So what's he saying? In verse 14, he references Isaiah. No, he doesn't. He references Deuteronomy. And you know what? He might not reference it. It might be Genesis. I need to do homework. I'll come back to you on that one. He references the Old Testament promise that he gave to Abraham. (laughs) Um, And so he references that oath. And within that oath is a promise. And what the author in Hebrews is telling us is that God is not just promising something. He is swearing by his own name. Well, in the Old Testament, oaths were a very big deal. You didn't break an oath. An oath was like your word that was legally binding. If you broke your oath, it was very, very shameful, and you could be charged for it. And so God is, in his glory and in his, I don't know, his majesty, his great power, he he can't swear on anything. He can't take an oath in any other name than his own because he is the most high. You can't go above God. And so God says, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. And then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. Verse 16 explains it a little bit. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. Without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Okay, so remember that question we asked earlier whenever we were talking about what does hope refer to in Scripture? 16 through 18 just gave us a little peek as to what that hope is. The quality of the hope that God gives us is that it is unchangeable. Well, how do you know? Because God promises it through his word and through his son, and God can't change. He can't lie. So if God tells you, I am going to redeem you, and one day you will be restored forever, and you will be in my presence because of what my son Jesus Christ did on the cross for you, what do we know is true? That that will happen. 
We don't have to, to debate that. We don't have to sit in our room and wonder, is God really coming? No, we know he's coming. We hunger, we thirst for that second coming. We desire for God to come and restore his people. We want to see his promises fulfilled. And in the same way, if you read back in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were going through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, time and time again, they would get caught in their own flesh and in their own mindset, and they would say, God, have you brought us out here in the wilderness to die? It was better for us to be enslaved in Egypt than to be out here with no food and no water to drink. And then Moses, which poor Moses has all these complainers around him, and he has to go and then go before God and say, God, remember your promises to your people. It's not because God forgot his promises. It's because Moses was sure of God's promises. And Moses knew that if God could remind his people of his promises, they'd stop grumbling. They would go in and inherit the promised land. But they were so caught up in now and in the brokenness around them and in their hunger and their thirst and their need that they forgot their spiritual certainty that God made a promise to them. I really feel like we can relate to those Israelites. We sometimes, in, as, as believers in today's world, feel like we're wandering, looking for God's light to be working in this world. God, where are you? Have you left us here in the U.S. in this broken place with everything going awry to die? Is this what you wanted, God? But as believers, we have to remind ourselves of our hope. God has not forgotten his people. God has not forgotten his plan. We don't need to remind God of how broken this world is. That's in his word. Little spoiler, it will always be broken. Until what? Until Jesus comes and restores his creation. Verse 19 is a beautiful verse. And it really wraps up well what our hope is. It says, this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 19 references an anchor. When you think of an anchor, you think of something that holds a ship in place, right? Well, where? In the middle of a rough and flowing ocean. And the beautiful thing is that God uses the picture of an ocean many times to refer to faith. The book of James talks about having faith that God will do what you ask him to. And he says, but let the man ask with faith and no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a person who is driven and tossed by the wind. A boat without an anchor. But God references this hope in Hebrews and he says, this hope is your anchor. 
And it's not just any anchor. It's strong and trustworthy. You can be sure that that anchor will do its job. And so as we think about our hope, that hope is the anchor of our souls. That God will indeed fulfill the things that he has promised us. That Jesus will indeed come back and restore his people. That Christ did indeed die on the cross for all of us to have the opportunity to one day step into God's glory. And that's the second half of verse 19. It says that that anchor of our souls leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. That's a direct reference to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. The believers had to gather and the high priest once a year would sacrifice a bull and the blood of the bull would atone for his sins and the sins of the people and he would walk into the inner sanctuary in God's presence on behalf of the people. Well, then what's this saying? One day, because of Jesus' sacrifice, see, the, the blood of the bull was to atone for sin and it would never do that enough. It would never complete that atonement. Why? Because next year, guess what? I got to do it again. Well, when Jesus came and died on that cross, his blood atoned for all sin, for eternity, and for history past, and for right now. And so one day, we get to walk through that curtain. I mean, just imagine. The curtain that separated God's people from his presence because of his perfection, his glory. If they would have walked through without being atoned for, they would die instantly. That same presence, because of Jesus' blood, we are promised we will stand before one day. How beautiful a picture that one day after all this hard work and suffering here on earth, that the end of the war will result in us eternally worshiping God in his presence. Verse 20 says, Jesus has already gone in there for us. Don't confuse why you are being, I don't know, empowered, why you are being allowed to be in God's presence. Don't confuse your hard work or your prayer life, or what you know and what you don't know about Scripture as the reason and the means by which you can come into God's presence. That's not it. Being in this room on Sundays is not it. Saying a specific prayer when you want to turn your life around is not it. What is your ticket into God's presence? Jesus Christ and his blood on that cross for your sins. That is so important, church. So important. He is the hope that is the anchor of our souls. And one of the things that challenges me a lot is that I get so caught up in how broken today is. And I hear it. I hear it a lot. And to be honest with you, a lot of times it beats me down. Uh, I had a lady at the outreach center the other day while I was ringing her up say, I wish your generation could get it right. Well, ma'am, me too. I wish yours could too. But we won't. The closest we can get to getting it right is giving it all over to God. 
and taking the hope of Jesus to those that don't know him. And let me be very real, that knows no age. There are babies born today that need to hear the hope of Jesus. And there are people on their deathbed today that need to know the hope of Jesus. And all in between. So it's our job, no matter our age, no matter our job, no matter our, our financial standing, no matter what position we play on what field, we have to go out into this world and tell them that Jesus is the only hope for life. And so as we enter this Christmas season and prepare for another year ahead, we've got to hold that hope high. We've got to write it down on a banner and hang that banner above our door so that every time we leave our home, we know what our hope is and what our, our goal is as followers of Christ. Now that banner can say one of two things. That banner can say, caution, there's a broken, scary world out there. And if we go out every day and we read that banner, we'll be disappointed, we'll be annoyed. At the end of the day, we'll throw our hands up and say, God, I don't know what you're doing with this place. We want you to come back now. God will come back when God desires to come back. What does he tell us to do in the meantime? To hunger for his return, but to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to do all that I have commanded you. So if we sit here like this, waiting, 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 and we've got people lining up to hear about him, that's a dangerous picture. But God honors us turning and knowing that he is returning one day and with great excitement. And, and hear me say, I need to hear this more than you guys do. But these people waiting in line to hear about him, they don't understand that he is the key to life. But I do. Heaven forbid I get focused like this and turn my back on those that don't know him. I need to be washing some feet. I need to be laying my life down. I need to be picking my cross up because these people might not get to be in that glory. And if I want to hold that glory for me, what good is it? What good is it if by receiving Christ, I condemn the world? That is not what Christ came to die for. And so we have to remember, I would challenge us to make our banner say something different. The book of John says in chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. That is the hope that comes in Jesus, that we are born in him. We cannot stand in God's presence aside from being born in Jesus. So, church, I challenge you and I challenge me 
that as we go out into this world, we look for those that don't have that hope. Let our hearts be broken for how crazy this world is. I mean, please, that is a healthy brokenness. But it becomes unhealthy when we forget that we have the solution. We have the hope that this world needs. And so as we go throughout this holiday season, take advantage of people being a little lighthearted right now. Take advantage of the opportunities to tell somebody that Jesus loves them and teach them what it means that he loves them. Bring them into his word. Pray with them. Tell them about the promises that are in his word and that we serve a God who never breaks his promise. And finally, ask yourself, what is my hope anchored in? Is it in my finances? Is it in my position, my status? Is it in my job? Is it in my identity? And if anything is threatening your anchor being securely placed in Jesus Christ, we got to trim that rope and tie a new knot because he is the only steadfast and sure hope that we have. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, I thank you for how great you are and how sure your promises are and how mighty your name is. And we thank you that you sent your son that we might have hope. God, I couldn't imagine living in a time where every time I wanted to approach you, even in prayer, I had to make a sacrifice of an animal to do so. God, thank you for sending Jesus to bridge that gap, to stand before us in the curtain and say, that is my child. Lord, hear their prayer. God, we believe you hear us and we know that we live in a time and in a world and in a space that is broken with sin. But God, direct our eyes inward. Help us address the sin in our own hearts. Help us address our shortcomings. Help us address our need for you so that we could be filled with your spirit and sure of the hope that comes in your name and go out and share that with others, Lord. We pray that you would put a name on our hearts this morning of somebody that we know that's close to us, whether it be family, friends, coworkers, and that they, Lord, would come and ask us about who you are. But Lord, if they're too shy or too scared to ask, we pray that you would give our hearts boldness in your name to go and proclaim your truth to this world because we know you desire to see people turn to you. We know you desire for your children to understand their identity in you. And God, identity can be so scary in today's world. But God, thank you for teaching us in your word and through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ about our identity in you. Let us remember our hope today and go out each day wearing that hope on our foreheads, on our tongue, in our hands, so that people understand that you are a beautiful God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.